The Irish Times Inside Politics podcast is going to be holding another live event. This one is in central Dublin on Thursday, May the 16th at 8am. We are going to be in Medley in Dublin too. We only have a few tickets left, so if you want to join me in conversation with head of Ipsos polling in the US, Cliff Young, along with Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray, looking at the polling in Ireland in the run-up to the European and local elections, just go to irishtimes.com slash events where you can get your tickets. It's Wednesday, May the 20th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. With me today, a triumvirate or maybe a troika of Irish Times political journalists in alphabetical order. We have, first of all, Jennifer Bray. You're very welcome, Jen. Hey. Uh, Harry McGee. Hi, Harry. Hi, Hugh. And also Pat Leahy. Hiya, Pat. Bonjour, Hugh. If I could go to you first, Pat, uh, we're going to look at a number of things in the, the political mix at the moment today, and obviously the negotiations, the lengthy negotiations on government formation uh, continue. But an interesting story Fia Kelly has on the front of today's Irish Times. Um, I don't know if it's quite a leadership heave, is it? But it's a leadership move of some sort within the Green Party. Uh, yeah, that's right, Hugh. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure if it's yet a heave, but it's certainly uh, a minor shove. Um, uh, Fiak, with his story this morning, again confirming his reputation as one of the leading troublemakers on the formation of government process. Story this morning saying a number of Green councillors have written to the party's deputy leader, Catherine Martin, asking her to stand uh, to stand against Eamon Ryan as leader of the party. Green rules say that uh, there must be a leadership contest sit within six months of a general election. Now, of course, this is taking place simultaneously and hardly unconnected to the negotiations on a programme for government at the moment. And it seems to me that in a way it's a sort of a proxy debate for the debate that will come within the Greens that has already taken place in their parliamentary party and was settled by vote in favour of entering the negotiations on a programme for government, but is on completion of those negotiations uh, yet to come within the wider party when any programme agreed by the negotiators must be approved, not just by a majority, but by a two-thirds majority amongst all the party's members. Um, So I'm a little confused as to you know, the exact motivation for this heave or proto-heave, if that's what it is, against Eamon Ryan, because I would have thought if there is an anti-coalition wing in the party, and there certainly is, uh, then it stands a better chance of winning a vote where uh, it only needs to get one third plus one of the members rather than a straight majority as it would on the leadership. So I I think it is evidence of, certainly prima facie evidence of discontent within the party at the prospect of coalition, not just amongst ordinary members, but also among some of its elected representatives. But it's also evidence perhaps of a bit of confusion as to strategy, because I'm not sure what it achieves If you were a member of the group trying to stop coalition, I'm not sure what this achieves um, right now. But um, but I guess we'll wait and see as to what develops over the coming uh, over the coming few days uh, and weeks. The action remains still uh, at the negotiating table, 
all parties say they can produce with a bit of effort, they can produce a document by the end of this month. That's only, what, week and a half, two weeks away. So um, I, I think that's where the fight will take place uh, initially. I mean, it's certainly the case, just to finish the point, it's, it's certainly the case that I think if Eamon Ryan lost a vote on a programme for government that he had concluded with Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael, his leadership position would be untenable anyway. So, um, so as I say, I'm slightly confused as to both the strategy and the tactics behind this. And of course, there's wheels within wheels and all that, and not least the fact that Catherine Martin is actually leading the negotiations on the programme for government. So should those negotiations prove to be successful in terms of bringing back a proposal to the Green Party, that would have been uh, an agreement that was negotiated by Catherine Martin. But there's another element I found intriguing. Fiek was talking to us a little bit about Eamon Ryan and his position within the, the party last week and the respect which older members in particular have for him because of all the hard years and the hard yards which he put in um, with the party. But a couple of the people talking over the last couple of days, including a council on RT Radio uh, this morning, um, we're talking, putting forward the idea that Catherine Martin was somehow an, a more appropriate leader for the party, particularly in terms of reaching out to rural voters who we know the party has a bit of a problem with. I'm slightly confused as to why a TD for Dublin Rathdown should be particularly skilled at that, but maybe there's something I don't know. Yeah, perhaps. And, and I've heard that said myself as well. Um, I think Catherine Martin perhaps has a different leadership style, uh, the way she goes about business. Um, I suppose the first thing to say is that in the Green Party constitution, a leader can remain in place for five years. I think there's an option for a recurring five years after that. But if there's a general election, there must be a leadership contest held within six months of that election. So to a certain extent, this issue was always going to come up. Um, I think what happened, and it has been well documented, that there has been a split in the Green Party, multiple splits, in fact, um, in relation to even the idea of going into talks at all. And we know that Catherine Martin voted against that. And I remember actually thinking it was interesting in the days after that came to light, uh, Pippa Hackett uh, was on the week in politics on the Sunday and she was asked, basically, is Catherine Martin preparing a heave and will you support her in that and Pippa Hackett seemed completely, to my eyes, taken aback by the question in that it seemed to be something that had been thought about, but she wasn't expecting to be asked about it. And she sort of said, oh, of, of course, you know, and 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 you, there has to be a leadership contest and that's all very normal. And then she was asked, do you stand by the leadership of Eamon Ryan? And she sort of dodged the question a little bit. And eventually she said, well, yes, we do. And then she was asked, does Catherine Martin stand by the leadership of Eamon Ryan? She said, oh, of, of course. But it was really interesting that it, it sort of, was perhaps a conversation that was going on a bit earlier than maybe has come to light. And I think what was going on behind the scenes during the um, talks or the talks before the talks probably has led to this. And I remember as well, one anecdote is someone in the Green Party said to me um, that if Eamon Ryan had his way, he would be out on the plinth every day telling us reporters after the various daily meetings exactly what had happened, whereas the rest of the party wanted to keep things under wraps and not play their cards quite so openly. And it was said to me that wouldn't be something that Catherine Martin would do. So I think this has actually been in the works for a while. It was always going to come up. Um, but I think the way in which the, the Green Party has got to this stage the very public way in which they've split and the way in which Kat Catherine Martin has handled herself and I suppose pushback against Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael has left us in a situation whereby I suppose these councillors are looking and saying maybe she's the best candidate. There is also an element, Harry, that um, it's been pointed out that Eamon Ryan was elected leader almost 10 years ago now. Um, if there isn't um, an election right now, 
uh, there might might be another five years. Uh, a leader without a leadership election for 15 years would be something, you know, quite remarkable in nearly every party, perhaps with the exception of Sinn Féin over the last couple of decades. So you, there, it's not surprising that there might, as well as the, the question of coalition, just be a bit of fatigue with Eamon Ryan. And there's a couple of snarky comments about his, his uh, suggestion that everybody should get their window boxes full of salads and things like that, a suggestion that maybe he's not quite in tune with modern Ireland. Yes, um, but um, he, he's in a very strong position at this moment in, in time. I mean, if you look at the way in which the parliamentary party divided um, in terms of going into coalition negotiations, he had he had the preponderance of TDs and senators on his side. So he had the backing of um, of uh, eight of the twelve TDs, and also both senators Pippa Hackett and Pauline O'Reilly both backed him very strongly uh, indeed. So you had Catherine Martin, uh, Francis Noel Duffy um, uh, and Nasa Hurigan, who were uh, amongst the dissenters and also Patrick Costello, who is a dissenter, but actually abstained, I think, uh, for, for the greater wheel uh, at the time. So that split, I think, in the parliamentary party, I think is representative of the membership of the Greens, which is about 3,000 and I think less than 2,000 have actually paid up. So um, I, I think Eamon Ryan has a relatively solid majority uh, within the party. But this, these kind of noises off do reflect, uh, a, a, as Jennifer and Pat were saying there, uh, dissidence, a little bit of dissidence, a little bit of dissonance uh, within the party. A lot of its younger membership would be more radical. And when they look at Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael, they will say none of the above. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, they'd prefer to see themselves as anti-capitalist, as radical uh, associated with uh, likes of such street groups as Extinction Rebellion. And it was interesting to see that uh, on top of Fiat's story this morning, uh, Lorna Bogue, who's a councillor in Cork, uh, has also added her voice to the mix. And she would be seen as very left and very radical uh, within the Green Party, as is Thirsha McHugh and uh, others. I think if Eamon Ryan had failed to get the party to enter negotiations with Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil, his position would have been very, very vulnerable uh, indeed. And it, it is true to say that Catherine Martin does harbour some ambition uh, to succeed Eamon Ryan as leader uh, of the party. But I think that once she's gone into negotiations on behalf of the party, I've been told by Green Party people that, that the five negotiators have been very sticky, even though they represent both camps and have united very strongly on policy. So uh, even though the leadership contest will come up, uh, if it is contested, I think that Eamon Ryan will comfortably win it. I think it would be very ironic uh, to see the person who brought the Green Party back uh, from zero uh, to having 12 TDs, two senators and two MEPs, plus almost 50 councillors being ousted by the party. It usually happens uh, when the trajectory is going the other way. But if he had failed in his endeavours uh, to get the Green Party to the negotiating table, Hugh, I, I think that he would indeed have been very uh, vulnerable uh, indeed. But it is interesting uh, to, to see that this is uh, coming out now. It did come out during the uh, internal debate that the Green Party had in relation to going into government negotiations. But I, I, I honestly don't see Eamon Ryan's position as being vulnerable at this moment in time. 
Speaking of those other parties, uh, Jen, um, there was an incident at the weekend. It reminded me of something I see when I'm out for my walks around my five kilometer radius uh, on a regular basis these days. Often you'll see there's an awful, awful lot of people out walking their dogs and sometimes one dog will encounter another dog and there's a brief outbreak of snarling and spitting and scratching and then they kind of go on their way. And it was a little bit like that between Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael at the moment. There was this kind of really odd little mini fight um, which kind of happened very quickly and then seemed to go away again. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think the the statement that Fine Gael put out over the weekend surprised some people in the, the tone of it, I suppose. So obviously what happened is, our, as Pat said, our, our resident troublemaker, Fia, cut a story last Friday that there are contingency plans uh, ongoing for an election should the government talks fail. And that seems entirely sensible uh, to anybody I've talked to and just from a common sense point of view, because we've all speculated about how difficult it will be for the three parties to get this deal Post deal passed their membership. So it is sensible. But of course, this story was picked up by Fianna Fáil as almost an example of Fine Gael, what they really want behind the scenes, that they're dragging these talks out, they're making them as long as possible, and that they just want another election, uh, um, and that they're not entirely dedicated or committed to the process. So I think then we have Barry Cowan and, and Thomas Byrne um, attacking them, and, and that sort of played out over the weekend. And then on Sunday, we had this statement from Fine Gael where they said that the talks process had been damaged. And I was really surprised when I saw it. It's actually my last day of holidays and it was the only thing that could drag me back into a frame of mind of thinking about work was when I spotted that statement and thought, oh God, is this entire thing about to fall apart? Are we looking at an election? But I think it was, it, it became kind of clear very quickly that it was a nonsense row, that it was a bit ridiculous and you know, a bit unnecessary. But what it shows is the level of distrust that is still there. It shows that the relationships between the negotiators and the relationships between the two parties, notwithstanding the everyday talks, are not great. And, you know, let's not be too surprised. The, the rivalry between Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil goes back to the civil war and has lasted through decades and decades of politics. We can't expect them to suddenly become entirely trusting of each other. Um, so, you know, in that way, it's not too surprising. But I thought one of the, the funniest aspects from my perspective on, on Monday was when they had their clear the air meeting and they were very sensitive about commentary around that meeting, they didn't want it to be seen as a, a clear the air meeting. They wanted it to be seen as a meeting that was already planned, already scheduled, uh, in which this topic would just come up. And afterwards, there was a statement saying there'd be no media commentary and it, this has been resolved, basically, and talks will continue. But then later that evening, there was the Fine Gael Parliamentary Party meeting in which Michael Ring stood up and said, uh, bellowed, I'm told, that the time for an election is now, that the, the party doesn't want this deal, the grassroots don't want this deal, uh, he was talking about how uh, Fianna Fallers in his constituency uh, and, and in the surrounding areas were going around talking about the not increasing the pension age and how, you know, I'm not sure about this at all and I'm not sure we can go with people who are going around making such promises. Um, so that, of <laughs> after the clear of the air meeting and then you have a Fine Gael parliamentary party meeting talking about an election, it, it didn't help matters. Now, in fairness, Michael Ring has always been a vocal opponent, but it just shows you the, I suppose, how difficult, if they get this deal through, how difficult the, the levers of government, how, how it's going to play out, the interpersonal relationships, it's going to be a, a wild ride. 
It's sure, it's going to be very different from any kind of a coalition we've seen before. But Pat, maybe Fianna Fáil are right to be suspicious of Fine Gael. I mean, you've written about a certain level of hubris within Fine Gael at the moment based upon their assessment of the reaction to their handling of the of the pandemic crisis, um, a, a rise in some of the opinion polls we've seen, a sense that maybe they wouldn't mind going back for another election at some point this year. Um, is there a sense of that within, within Fine Gael? I think so. Yeah, and I think that's what the row is about. But just let me go back to the Greens for a minute before we get, uh, get completely off them and just make two points about, I think it's often, you know, it has been said of Eamon Ryan that, you know, he's not a very calculating politician. Some people have suggested to me that, you know, Eamon is very good and well-meaning, but he's not that great at politics. But actually, if you look at where he is at the moment, and Harry said he's in a strong position, I think that's correct. He has his own party more or less where he wants them. And he has Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael more or less where he wants them. Now, you know, this thing could come off the rails at any time. But I suspect if you offered Eamon Ryan this position several weeks ago, he would have taken it. The other thing is about the division in the party. It's often been said, you know, and Harry's written a lot about this, that the, you know, the traditional division was between the the realists, the realos and the, the fundies, the fundamentalists. And, and that, is, that is certainly true in the wider organisation. I think in the, in the parliamentary party and perhaps amongst the wider elected representatives, the more important division at this stage is between the people who absolutely prioritise envir- the environmental agenda and between people, many of whom have come into the party in recent years, who are in, interested in that agenda, of course, but also in much broader social justice, uh, as they would see it, uh, issues. And I think when the vote comes down to it, that's what the party will have to figure out where the trade-off lies between the environmental agenda and between broader uh, broader social goals. About your question, then, uh, just about the 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 perception I think in Fianna Fáil uh, that Fianna Gael was having something of an each way bet. I think on the negotiations, I think that's broadly. Uh, I think that was broadly correct. There is a certain ambivalence right to the top of Fianna Gael about the outcome of these negotiations. Uh, on the one hand, if it is a success, then of course they're back in government. Uh, for a third time in succession. Uh, but if, they, if the negotiations fail, then they would go into a general election in a much, much stronger position than Fianna Fáil would and a much stronger position than Fianna Gael went into uh, the last election in February in. And I think that it's, it was that frustration and that sense in Fianna Fáil about Fianna Gael having that each way bet on the negotiations, I think that's what lay behind that row at the weekend, which, in a, in, in a way, the pretext for the row was kind of flimsy enough. But the row itself was real and reflective of real tensions between the parties that is simmering uh, behind the negotiations and I think will continue uh, as they head towards their resolution. I suppose, um, Harry, nature abhors a vacuum and this particular political vacuum has been going on for more than than 100 days now and it's perhaps not surprising that these tensions start, you know, blowing up hither and thither, little, little bombs going off everywhere and increasingly we'll have that. 
how sustainable is this? I mean, I asked Vic this last week, you know, when, you know, if all were to go according to the plans of those who want government formation to happen and the Green Party were to successfully negotiate something and it were to be passed with the two thirds and it were to be agreed by Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael, we're still talking the very the tail end of June before a government arrives. And we're really beginning to see signs that um, this government is looks like a government on its last legs, doesn't it? That there's a, there are questions of legitimacy that are increasingly being raised, particularly about ministers who haven't actually been members of the Oireachtas for, you know, four or five months now. Absolutely. I mean, the need for a new government is is beyond essential. You know, there, there, there's a constitutional problem in relation to legislation. I know there are, there are arguments in relation to that, but the de facto situation as now, or what, what's accepted now, is that no legislation can pass through the Oireachtas. We have a Shannon that can't begin to commence uh, because we don't have a Taoiseach to uh, nominate 11 senators to make up the 60. And as Jennifer was reporting this morning, the government is running out of cash. Uh, under the four-fifths rule, uh, they're allowed to spend uh, uh, 80% of the budget uh, without without uh, f- further approval, and that eighty percent for for the Department of Health and the Department of Social Protection is coming really fast down uh, the tracks. And the question of legitimacy of ministers who are unelected, of special advisors to unelected ministers still operating, uh, is 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 an anomaly, uh, and that's a euphemism. I mean, it it, it actually offends against the whole precept of uh, democracy. So there is a need for a new government that has uh, the uh, endorsement of, of, of the people who, who voted in the uh, election. And as you pointed out, it's been uh, 100 days. And yes, there have been uh, bumps on the road and we had a particularly nasty little spot last weekend. But I was told when I was asked, last asked about it yesterday and I was talking to people yesterday, uh, they say that, that the negotiations have have uh, raised up a notch this week and have become more focused and more intense and more uh, serious. And I do think that um, because they're spending so much time in this negotiating uh, phase and because everybody has taken on uh, a, uh, a a policy of omerta, uh, they have been very unleaky, unlike uh, previous government formation exercises. Uh, I, I think the intent is very serious. And I do think that the government that, that will emerge or that, that might emerge from these, these negotiations will be a little bit like the Fine Gael Labour government of 2011. It will have a, a workable majority. It will have participants who know that it's going to be very tough and who know that they're going to uh, suffer uh, the arrows of misfortune, of electoral misfortune, uh, for the tough decisions that they have to make. But I do think that, that, the, that if a government does emerge, I do think that it has the potential uh, to stay the course uh, perhaps I'm being hopelessly optimistic and hopelessly naive, uh, despite all of the experience that should be telling me otherwise. But I do think, uh, you know, just looking at the sincerity of those who are involved uh, in the process, uh, that that uh, something will emerge. I know Fine Gael might be riding both horses home and thinking maybe at the back of their minds about an election. But they also know that even if there is an election later on in the year, the problems that will confront them will be exactly the same. And and everything, everything they will do, nothing will be a crowd, a crowd pleaser. All they're going to get is they're going to get grief and they're going to get criticism and they're going to lose a lot of seats after the next election. 
it's nice to hear that note of optimism from from Harry there, there, there Jen, because so, so so rarely heard on this podcast after all. But um, to get back to my preferred default mode of giving out about things, I uh, actually the 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 first sittings of the the new COVID committee in the Oireachtas yesterday. Um, even though they were relatively gentle and they had to be relatively low key and they have to operate obviously under uh, particular constraints. But they they served for me anyway to remind us the fact that there has been very little accountability. There has been very little ventilation. There has been very little political discussion of all these difficult decisions, which are getting more difficult and more complex by the day as we move into this more complex period. And that we really lack it. We really lack that. You know, that's a real political lack right now that the country is suffering from. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, I think there have been efforts to address um, those criticisms uh, over the last few weeks, to be fair. But I think uh, in the initial phase, I know even when uh, after uh, Alan Kelly highlighted in the doll about the existence of these letters between the uh, board of the HSE and the Minister for Health, Simon Harris, and the, the Secretary General of the Department of Health, Jim Breslin, that these letters existed, those communications. And he talked about, you know, was there any correspondence between the government and the HSE? And he was trying to figure out sort of what the what the issues were that were emerging behind the scenes and he couldn't get any straight answers. And then when we subsequently wrote about it and found that there, there were these letters being exchanged and, and they were talking about really serious issues around testing capacity, which will, will become one of the most important issues as we move into the next phase of kind of hopefully exiting the crisis and, and properly flattening that curve and all, all those catchphrases. Um, and Get, actually getting our hands on on those letters or any information about them was completely impossible. And, you know, even as a journalist, you use other routes, you go through freedom of information legislation, and even th- those requests were being put on the back burner, we're being told it'll be July before um, the department can address them. And we've been told the requests were too voluminous, even though there was only a few letters in there. So it has been kind of a rocky road to get to a point whereby the, even this correspondence is now being published, which is really, really welcome. Um, and there was obviously the issue in relation to the public health emergency team, those meetings that are being had. Now, some of the most important decisions are being made by this team um, and the discussions that they have, I think, uh, in the interest of transparency, the public have a right to know, um, at least quite soon afterwards, if not immediately afterwards. And the process to getting those published also was met with some resistance. And even in terms of the the the, the message that the government puts out or, or that the various bodies put out, when various different media outlets, including ourselves, report that there have been tensions between the government and between the public health emergency team and between the HSE, at first we hear, no, there's no tensions, no, everything's fine. And then the next day you'll have Paul Reid of the HSE out saying, yes, there are constructive tensions. So there's been a real reluctance to kind of actually call a spade a spade in this process. I do think we are getting some way towards addressing that. But then I suppose if you look at the, the COVID committee, it's quite restrained in many ways about how it goes about its questioning because there are these public health concerns around how long you can have the witnesses inside the doll chamber or any room. It means that the questions that the TDs can put forward have to be very, very direct and really, really concise. But it also means that the answers that they get are similarly so. It makes it hard to get, um, I suppose, the more drawn out um, I mean, I've been at committees before where it took three or four hours to get a simple answer to a simple question, but eventually you got there. But because of the way these committees have to be formulated now, that's harder. And I think the Oireachtas got medical, well, not medical, well, I suppose it is medical advice yesterday uh, or in the last couple of days um, from Professor Martin Cormican, where he said that 
having um, these witnesses, let's say you had Paul Reed, Tony Holland, Jim Breslin in the same room for more than two hours and then letting them go off and come back after a break would would basically be a public health concern. And that if any of those three uh, was diagnosed with COVID-19, the others would also have to quarantine for 14 days. And I suppose it echoed some of the concerns that Tony O'Brien, former head of the HSC, had aired over the weekend where he talked about it being uh, probably not wise to have all these people in the same room together. And the reason why I bring this up is because actually I think this might have uh, longer term consequences for how the doll does a business if indeed it does get back in, in mid-June because this would mean that you cannot have the same TDs and ministers in a room for more than two hours. So the business committee are going to look at this issue next week. Um, I spoke to a couple of members of the business committee last night and they said it's a logistical nightmare and the medical advice they've got is not practical and they don't know how they're going to get around it. So the issue of accountability is about to get a whole lot more complicated. It's all very interesting, that Pat. And actually, you know, some people were making the, you know, posing the question, well, is the same rigour being applied to people who work in meatpacking factories or supermarkets or another place? Although I think there's a particularly legitimate point about having the three most significant people who are running this pandemic crisis in a room at the same time. That is that, you know, that that is clearly an issue. But I'm going to I just wonder, I'm going to do a dangerous thing and make a prediction here, which is that, um, if the numbers of new cases um, continue on the trajectory they're on at the moment, uh, which is getting much, much lower, uh, albeit with a couple of hotspots, the aforementioned meatpacking plants being one of them still there to be to be addressed. But if that continues, and as we look around Europe and we look at most European countries um, easing lockdown restrictions faster than we are in Ireland, there will be increasing political pressure and the political debate will become more and more important about when you can, for example, release the hairdressers, open the pubs, allow people to go on a holiday to the west of Ireland. That's going to be a kind of a key political narrative as well as a medical one over the next six to eight to ten weeks. I think that's right, Hugh. Um, we've discussed aspects of, of, of that here before. I mean, I think that the the early part of this crisis, understandably and correctly, was dominated entirely. The decision making was dominated entirely by the public health experts. But as we move into this phase of it and hopefully into the next phase of it, um, then broader inputs into decision making are not just likely I think they're desirable. And we saw a couple of weeks ago the cabinet trying to assert itself into that decision making process. And I think that dynamic is likely to continue. The next important bit of that, I think, will come uh, in, you know, three weeks time or so when the effect of the initial opening that we're seeing this week in in the numbers of cases begins to uh, become apparent. So what we've seen in some other countries that after that initial uh, after that initial opening up, there is a, a, a sudden increase in cases. And we will almost certainly see that here too. It's the extent of that increase that will decide, I think, the the next phase after that of the reopening. So I think it's very clear that the next phase, which is due, I think, for June the 8th, that will go ahead. It's the one after that, which I think takes place on June the 20th, is scheduled to take place on June the 29th. That will be the one that tells us whether we are going back to not normality, but some sort of uh, restored levels of 
social and commercial activity or whether we're going to continue in a sort of semi-lockdown into the future. And I think in the discussions about, you know, exactly the implications of those anticipated rises in the numbers and hospital admissions and ICU admissions and so forth, I think in that debate, we will see significantly more input, not just from politicians, but from lobby groups and industry representatives and uh, and so forth. And I think that a very important part of the input into that will be from not just from business interests, but from the Department of Finance and the Department of Public Expenditure, which will be looking at their massive outgoings will be looking at uh, anemic tax returns and will be doing the sums uh, about the sustainability of uh, the current trajectory of the public finances and I think is likely to be advising, uh, subject to public health concerns, uh, are likely to be advising as quick a reopening as possible. So just a last thought on that then, um, Harry, because given your optimism about the potential longevity of a future government, if all goes according to plan, um, that government will be coming into power just as those key decisions are being arrived at and on the basis of that data right there at the end of June. That's right. Um, the, the, each of the parties will have to go through a very convoluted process, less convoluted for Fine Gael than for Fianna Fáil and for the Greens. Uh, the Greens and Fianna Fáil will have to put it to their membership. Uh, both of them are looking at the prospect of kind of electronic debates or uh, internet debates and uh, lots of, of Zoom meetings and then some kind of a postal vote or, or some kind of a, a, a non-physical vote being cast uh, by, by membership and each of them involves a convoluted scenario. So I think the, the end of June seems like a realistic end date for everything uh, if, if talks proceed to to uh, plan. The difficulty then, of course, is what happens next. And, you know, I, I was at a briefing with Pascal Donoghue yesterday uh, where he talked about a two trillion uh, stimulus uh, being available between, uh, between loans and between payments and between uh, underwriting from the European Union. And that, that's a figure that, that would probably take you about two or three minutes to, 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 to write. So I think the recession that we're going to, to, to face is going to be relatively prolonged and is going to be difficult. And even if we do relatively well uh, here in Ireland, we have such an open market and are so dependent on others that if others lag behind, uh, we're going to feel that drag uh, effect uh, as well. And yes, I, I think we're in a better place than we were 10 years ago, but that doesn't make the challenge that we face uh, in this state uh, any less uh, difficult. And I think people have been... You know, there's been a, 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 a because it's such an unreal experience what people have been through over the past two months, and because perhaps the weather has been so nice, and because there are aspects to the lockdown uh, that are not unpleasant, I think people have been buoyed into a slight uh, sense of security. But it's when the 350 euro payment per week comes to an end, and when people begin to realise that the job that they've been working in in the past 10 years is no longer there. Uh, that's when the real challenges and the real hardship is going to kick uh, into place. And there are challenges like for so many different industries, including our own, uh, in the months and, and the years ahead. So even though I think the government, I, I hope that, that whatever government comes out of it will stick together because the challenges are enormous. 
but I, I, I don't underestimate uh, for a second the, the enormity of the challenge that they face and the vicissitudes that they're going to face uh, in terms of electoral uh, backlash over the next uh, couple of years. Because whoever goes into government is not going to win any popularity contest uh, anytime uh, soon. So um, I, I think we are now experiencing a little bit of a calm uh, before the uh, the storm that, that's about to be uh, unleashed, the economic storm that's going to be unleashed. And I, I just don't think the next year or two are going to be very, very difficult for this state, but for most states throughout Europe as well. All right. Well, the sun is still shining outside my window, so I'm going to enjoy that while I can. Thanks for that uh, chilling, but I think fairly realistic analysis of what's coming down the track, Harry. Thanks also to Pat and to Jen for joining us. Thanks to our producer, Declan Conlon and engineer JJ Vernon. If you would like to support this podcast and indeed all of the journalism which we uh, produce at the Irish Times, all you have to do is go to irishtimes.com slash subscribe, where you can sign up for an introductory price of one euro for the first month. And if you want to get in touch with us, we'd be really happy to hear from you. You can mail us at politicspodcast at irishtimes.com. But until the next time, thanks very much indeed for listening.